I think what people underestimate is like the pure level of talent that we had at WeWork. Like it's unlike anything I've ever seen. Like you pick pick a role, pick a role at any company, and I bet you we have someone as good or better at WeWork doing that same thing. Yep. So what is the the repercussions of SoftBank? I think it came back to creating something that has to move so fast. And when those things move so fast, the discretion it takes to take time to make sure incentives are aligned, I think is really, really hard. And so like you see a company growing fast and you have a real estate team that is incentivized on signing of square, like lease, uh, square footage leased. Yeah. Great. Well, I got to go operate that the next 15 to 20 years and I can't fill it up, but they don't care. Right. They do care. Yeah. But, but incentives say they don't care, right? Like they're incentivized to go lease, whether it's a great location for us or not. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you so much for joining me today on the Fort Podcast. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow it on Apple, Spotify, or whatever platform you're listening on. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating or review. And last but not least, you can check all these episodes out on YouTube. So thank you again for joining me and enjoy the show. And this episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. If you're a broker or anybody out there that knows of a class B industrial building for sale, we want to hear from you. Our criteria is that we hope that it's between 10 and $75 million in total purchase price. Fort Capital offers industry-leading incentives including an additional bonus, the ability to co-invest, a piece of the upside, and exclusive partner trips. Last year, we went to Lajitas and we went to Las Vegas, and it was a lot of fun, and we'd love to see you there this year. Join Fort Capital's Deal Incentive Program today to be eligible for these incentives and more by going to www.fortcapitallp.com backslash connect. Nathan, welcome to the show. I'm happy to be here, Chris. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great week so far. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure to have you. Thanks for coming over. Um, let's just, this is, uh, for those listening, this will be a, a fun episode with kind of two main topics. We're going to talk about Nathan's uh, career at WeWork um, and everything that he experienced there and kind of, you know, where it's led to today. And then we're going to talk about his most recent career, um, doing an HVAC roll-up. So we'll have kind of two parts here. So let's just start with kind of setting the stage of kind of how did you begin your career? How did you get to WeWork? Yeah, it's, uh, um, so I started college uh, in 2001, first semester, 9-11 happens. Oh, wow. uh, I come from a very military family. Uh, I'm one of the oldest of seven kids. I'm a twin. And my twin brother had already joined the army before that. And so I'd gotten in a little trouble my first semester of college already. <laughs> and so uh, I figured I was going to join at some point in one way or the other. And so I took off for the army, um, had an incredible six years active duty. And uh, you know, just learned a lot about leadership, did a couple uh, couple years in Iraq. And uh, it came out of that with a love and thirst for real estate. Um I used to send like love letters home to my wife. Uh, I'm a super nerd. And, <laughs> and it'd see like, um, we lived in a fourplex at the beginning. I'm like, man, we could buy one of these and then we could snowball it with the the cash flow <laughs> and we could start doing another one. And like literally like pages and pages of like cash flow. I was like, look, we could do a two or three in a year. And so like, um, definitely a nerd. And, uh, and so like that kind of started my, my like love for real estate. Um, my wife's family also has a bunch of rentals as well, like 60, 70 units. Damn. 
And so, um, so went from there and I landed at Lockheed Martin, um, after college, I went back to college again, finished, um, went to Lockheed Martin and I was like, oh, perfect setup, great place for veterans. Um, I love it. And I hated it. Yeah. It's an incredible company, but a really poor fit for me. Ultimately, regardless of whose name's on the building, you work for the U S government and yeah. that is slow. Um, so I ended up actually starting my own business while I was there moving to a night shift. So I'd get up, uh, I'd go to work at like 3 PM, uh, and work till about 3 AM, get up, do my business from seven till about two 30. Oh, wow. Uh, I did that for like eight, nine months and then, uh, almost killed myself on the highway driving home in the middle of the night and, uh, and then took the, took the leap. And so that was a property management company, first kind of entrepreneurship thing, flipping houses to pay the bills. Kids like eat every day. I got four kids. Yep. Um, and so. I got a real taste for it there. So we grew that pretty, pretty fast. Um, and, uh, we thought about selling it. We we're trying to figure out like, do we really want to do this long time, uh, or not? And as soon as we thought we had like five people interested, you yeah. know, so we just played them off each other for a while. We sold that business and the day that we accepted, um, like the verbal offer, uh, someone reached out from WeWork and, um, from the day someone reached out to the day I started was like seven days. So like the fastest Damn. experience ever, um, is pretty cool. I literally, uh, you know, I went through the interviews and I was supposed to have like a whole bunch of interviews, including someone with a C-suite and like the last guy I met with, um, his whole job was just, he was like the global head of ops and, uh, his whole job was just to make sure I knew how to take care of a PNL. Yeah. And, and if I'm really honest, like <laughs> I had never really taken care of like a large PNL. I yeah. did my own business. I did have an MBA. Um, so I made my own PNL, brought it into the interview and he's like, this is amazing. I've been doing this for 30 years and no one's ever brought a PNL into an interview. And, uh, and so he's like, I'm not even gonna have you meet with the C-suite guy. Like, I'm just going to hire you. Let's go. Uh, so that was pretty cool. And then, uh, the first time I met that, that C-suite person later, he's like, oh, too good to meet with me, huh? Like, what's up with that? You know, like <laughs> you big time in me already. So, uh, I had to kind of overcome that, but that was my journey to WeWork and, uh, really one of the best, uh, experiences from, for me in my career. I learned so much there. Yeah. All right. Before we get into WeWork, you said a couple interesting things. I just want to go through. Uh, you just said like the army one, thank you for your service as always. Um, but you just said it taught you a lot about leadership. Sure. Are there just like a couple things that come to mind, like what you took out of there that you might not have learned had you not gone to the army when it relates to leadership? Yeah. I think a lot of people have heard of extreme ownership and kind of like how well Jocko articulates this. Yeah. Um, when you're 19 years old and you're in uh, a foreign country in the middle of a war zone, it's, uh, you learn a level of ownership that you didn't know you could, could do basically. Yep. And in the military, the expectation was like, you own everything. So Chris, if you're my soldier and you went off and you got a DUI and you're in jail in the middle of the night, like guess who's picking you up in the middle of the night and yeah. guess whose fault it is my fault. Yep. You know? And so like, I, um, I've got a lot of funny stories. Uh, I got my like ass chewed out from the very first person who was the the senior enlisted advisor to the joint chief of staff. So they created this position. Um, and you know, it was, uh, I had done like a whole lot of work with this soldier and the soldier ended up, um, going to like a soldier of the year competition, just kept winning, 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 winning. And, um, you get asked questions kind of like trivia. And so he goes to these boards and he gets asked questions and he went to two boards in a row. He won one and he lost one. So this is at like the Fort hood soldier of the year level. And then a level past that. And I was a sponsor. So I was the guy like mentored him, but he wasn't even on my team. Like I spent all this extra time with him. Um, and he, he won one and lost the other one. And the, the theme between the two is he missed current event questions both times. So we spent so much time the second time on current events and he still missed a question. So this, uh, this command sergeant major was like, Lenahan, you are a piece of shit. He's like, if I was king for a day, you know, like 
I would put that guy in charge of you. You don't know how to lead, like all this stuff. And I had literally put hundreds of hours into this person that wasn't even on my team to yeah. make sure he was successful. Um, and it was like, it's one of my favorite stories now, just because, um, you know, like it, I, you get to own it, you get yeah. to own it at the, the highest level. And so I got to see someone succeed. That, that soldier was young. Um, he got a free car for a year, which is super cool. Uh, awesome. you know, and so, you know, from that level, uh, you just, you just learn a ton of ownership. So that's, that's one of them. Um, you learn about like disagreeing, but still acting, Yeah, you know? And so I love this idea of disagree, commit. So like when I talk to my teams, it's always about, Hey, like, tell me everything that's wrong with this. Tell me, I'm into, like, I don't care. Let's talk to it. Let's get to the best idea. And then let's freaking make a decision and move on. Right. And, uh, and I didn't realize the army taught me that until later on, yeah. um, where you're like, man, I, there's all kinds of crap I didn't agree with. And like, we still, uh, you know, took the orders and we did what we were supposed to. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that one has actually taken me really far is there's no ego. Like, I don't care if I come up with the idea or if it comes from someone else. Um, and so I think that's something that's really benefited me, uh, well. And then lastly, like I could laugh in any situation, like the worst things, like instead of crying, you laugh in the military, I think. And, uh, um, I think that has taken me a long way where I find humor in anything. And, yeah. and I think it's actually a very underrated leadership quality. A hundred percent. Um, thank you for sharing that. We actually extreme ownership, uh, every employee at Fort reads it in their first 60 days of joining the company. I love that. Um, accountability is one of our core values and that's kind of to the ownership thing. Um, and then the second you, let's just talk about this property management business for a little bit, yeah. uh, huge listenerships in the real estate world. Can you just describe what you were managing and kind of the size of the company you got it to? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's nothing that exciting, but yeah. the, uh, we started off from scratch. Uh, we did single family homes. So just really, you know, we, me and my partner both had a single family kind of rental portfolio. Um, and we were, you know, looking to build our kind of, I guess, little mini empires as you would. And so, uh, my background, my little degree from, um, from college is facility and property management. So like, okay. I love, it's like the coolest degree ever. Um, so I learned a lot of this stuff and I got to do it in, in practice. And so, uh, yeah, we just jumped in. We went from, I don't know, zero to over 150 units pretty quick. Okay. Um, and that's when we started figuring out, like we started getting in a small multifamily at that point. And we we're just really wondering like, Hey, do we want to do this long-term? Is this worth it? Um, when you're serving two masters, the renter and the landlord, it becomes really, really, really painful. Yeah. Um, especially when it's a B2C kind of thing, because everyone thinks they're the exception. Everyone thinks they're special. Oh, yeah. Everyone's got a sob story. And like I'm pretty empathetic on a lot of those things, but at some point you're like, man, just get me out of this. Yeah, so, run a business. Um, absolutely. So that that was um that was it. And then also like the other lesson we learned is like we grew really fast yeah. and we did not capitalize it the way we probably should have, you know. Uh, and so, like I mentioned earlier, I have four kids. They like eating every single day, uh, <laughs> turns out multiple times. Yeah, and, they're human. <laughs> right. And so, um, you know, so we made a conscious decision that, hey, I think we want to do something um, a little bit different. And if we're going to do this again, probably straight multifamily if we if we go after it again. So um, so we just we reached out to a few people and we got we got bought up by um, a larger private equity backed company that was consolidating the market. Yeah. Did you, um, when you went to sell, did you hire like a business broker or somebody to list it? No, we did not. So no. you just reached out to like other property managers or, and said, Hey, we'd be interested in selling. Yep. Pretty much. Can you describe just for a little bit kind of, uh, how your business was valued and how the transaction actually happened? Yeah. I mean, we, we end up going, um, like sell the book of business, so yeah. not even a full asset sale. Like yeah. you just go after, Hey, here's a contract. Here's what they're worth. Uh, we did an, we end up doing an earnout, give us the greatest value where 
you know, based on like, hey, what are you actually charging for management fees? Um, you know, what's your actual revenue per unit? And then like creating a valuation on top of the, uh, like out of that on average. Mm-hmm. And then we did have, we had a lot of great properties and like, um, you know, our biggest, we had a lot in Arlington, but um, we had a, a nice pocket in Dallas uh, and University um, Park. Yeah, Park. Sorry. Yeah. I lost it for a second there. Um, in, in that area. And so that one, that really helped us of trying to get like someone trying to get a foothold. So this company didn't have a very strong presence in DFW yet. And so they're just looking for some kind of foothold to get. So that's, that's what we anchored on was uh, the higher end properties that we are taking care of. Um, and then we did have some multifamily that we were taking care of at the end there. So uh, as far as valuation, yeah, like really getting in um, specific. So we had, I think our base was like 12 to 1300 a contract. And then you had like um, some earn outs that could almost double that. Yeah. yeah. And did they do, um, and this is, I did an episode with Peter Lohman. He talked a little bit about this, what, um, what he talked, he was actually buying them. Was there some... Um, like value put on by the end of the first year after selling it, whatever churned or whatever owners, exactly. they don't have to pay you for those basically. Yeah. And there is a, there's an attrition rate that goes, we actually had a hundred percent retention, oh, which wow. I think goes to show, um, you know, like I think we did a pretty darn good job and we really enjoyed it, but, uh, yeah, hundred percent retention. So we actually got every penny of the earnout, which was really exciting to see, um, you know, overall, but yeah, that was exactly how, how it, how it was laid out. All right. So, um, you become Mr. P&L, uh, you go and interview at WeWork. Uh, will you just set the stage for uh, the size of the company, kind of where it was in the life cycle, maybe what year you joined and kind of what you were hired to do to start? Yeah. So I joined uh, late 2016. Uh, I was like employee 1200-ish, you okay. know, like somewhere in that ballpark. That's big. Um, yeah, it was decent size. Um, at the time I was, I was hired as the head of operations for the Southern U S. So, um, I think a glorified title for essentially like director of facilities, more or less. Um, that was my background and, and I really enjoy it. Uh, I really love the intersection of like people, uh, real estate and technology. And and this seemed to be even more than I, I thought it could be. Um, and so at that point we only had, shoot, we only had like three locations in the Southern U S um, three, yeah, three or four. And, you know, we were, we were growing quickly, you know, so that was the reason I was coming in. We had a, uh, like a regional GM, uh, who was incredible and, um, but he was very young too. And so like, I was, I think helping him just as a leader a little bit and then, um, and then the operational prowess, you know, getting in, getting systems. So like my first day, <laughs> um, I got my laptop, actually laptop didn't show up second day laptop finally shows up and like, Hey, um, here's our first task for you. Uh, we we fired our cleaners across uh, these five locations and cities. Uh, we gave them 30 days notice and we're about 20 days into those 30 days. So like, we need you to find a new cleaner. We needed to be about 25% cheaper than uh, what we had before. And we needed to be better. I was like, oh, oh okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I kind of built out the model of what we needed and like, you know, how many hours or square feet you're cleaning per hour, like at the cost and you know, like try and baseline that off of like uh, industry standards, which is really hard to do. And I like a very dense, um, you know, uh, occupancy building that's yeah. all freaking glass, yeah. you know, like people put their hands everywhere. So it's hard to keep it pristine. Yeah. Um, and so that was kind of like my first wave of, of like jumping in. And this was a role head of operations that they were kind of bringing in across the country at the time. Um, so that was the first foray. Like I jumped in and it was freaking nuts and it was incredible and it was fun. And like, I got to make an impact from day one. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So 
just to confirm, when you started, that y'all were in three or four markets in the South, or you only had three or four locations? In yeah, the we South? had we had two in Miami, we had one in Atlanta, um, we had one. No, actually, we had two in Austin, so four, four, and we were about to open because like thirty days in is when I opened my first one. Okay, uh, first location. Yeah. Okay, so you um your first day on the job, you're kind of thrown into the fold. What was the job kind of in the year that that followed? Were you like, because y'all were opening locations, it seemed like every week that I opened the business journal, there was a new location opening. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was uh, it was just as crazy as you could probably imagine. Uh, you know, I think I traveled 80% plus my time. If I wasn't on a plane, I was in an interview pretty yeah. much, um, or I was meeting with a landlord or walking real estate. Like that's pretty much what it was. Um, and it's like, it's dealing with the the details of a negotiation of Uh, I can tell you the biggest questions, for instance, in like Texas are like, okay, how much does it cost? What's my commute? Where do I park my car or my big ass truck? You know, and and the, and the parking, oh man, I know more about parking than I ever want to know in my life. uh, Just because it became such a constraint for success of a building. I'm sure we'll talk about that later, but um, so, yeah, I mean, we went from those four or five locations you know, I joined in like the late end of the year, so uh, October timeframe. So we opened another one in Domain in Austin, mm-hmm. and then um, and then we just started rapid fire. You know, so like we were launching cities. I think I ended up launching like being part of like twelve or thirteen cities that we launched across the country. Um, I think I did probably fifty to fifty five um, ish openings of of locations in less than three years. Yep. Uh, you know, growing from shoot, I mean, we we're probably like four or five million in revenue when I joined to. 200 plus on run rate when I left for my region. So, okay. There's so much to ask. Yes. Um, when you joined, just to be clear in 2016, was the, was it already in place that like, we're going to take over the entire world and that's what you thought you were joining at the time? Or did that happen kind of once you had joined? Yeah, it's, um, there was definitely a little bit of an aura of that. Um, like in our, I, th- I think in like actually running the stuff, there's uh, there's a little more like tempered expectation of like, hey, you know, we have to be the reality on the ground yeah. to to slow us down. So um, I think there, was, I won't say there's a healthy balance because we got Trump to be a decent amount, but like um, I appreciated like the the like aggression and like how how much we wanted to grow because if you think about it, there was a intention to have. Uh, scale and value like a, a brand like you would appreciate like a Marriott or Hilton like if you have enough locations people will use you even more right and, right. and they can hop from locations and there's this flexibility and I think there's like a really wonderful vision around that and I think that persists today um, but uh, so that was like the vision they were going after of we have this physical space and then you can continue to bolt like additional value on top of it right um you said that you were like on a plane touring, doing all these things, or you were interviewing when you're in like hyperscale. And I've never been in that situation. I, and I really haven't had a lot of folks on the podcast that have been in that situation, but how do you like build a culture and like systems and processes when there's just new people joining the fight every single day? Like, what is that like? It's, um, it's crazy. It's fun. It's challenging. It's, uh, it's stressful. Yeah. Um, I think it all starts with those first few hires. Like, yeah. what are you, what example are you setting? Um, our, our, the GM that we had in the beginning, he was just wonderful. He had grown up in, in, in WeWork. So he knew what it, like, what was the look and feel of it. 
Um, and then I, I think I got a chance to come in and have a little more of the experience, like put in an action and like put a little more process. Uh, I'd love to tell you, like, there's this beautiful, like interview process that yeah. works for everyone. And there isn't no, but, like there, there just isn't. Um, I would, I would, I would suggest that people are far worse at interviewing than any of them think they are yeah. myself included. And, um, but it, it came down to like attitude, um, you know, willingness to believe in the vision and, and who we were as, uh, uh, as a company, you know, are you willing to work your tail off? And then like, um, you know, sharing that, Hey, we're investing our growth means your growth. And, yeah. you know, if you put in the time, like there's incredible opportunity here. So uh, I think I had a lot of success building that team early on. Um, and I'll actually honestly tell you like the, the, the thing I used to say to the team all the time is like our greatest risk is not competitors. It's not necessarily how fast we're growing. It is if we outgrow our culture, then we're in big, big trouble. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, this is a people business, just like every other business. Yeah. And, and, and when people are coming on that quickly, one, there's this, there's one part of it, which is the team is identifying positions at rapid pace that need to be filled. And then you're filling them was even at 1200 people or a lot of the people that are starting their first day in similar situations to you, where there's not this like, you know, six month training program. And like, you kind of limp your way in. It's like, Hey, here's your desk. Here's your project. Good luck. This is who you report to. And we're going to, try and provide as many resources as we can to making you feel successful. Yeah, I think it's a little more contained um, in, in that regard, because if you look at, if you think about the vast majority of, of our roles, especially on like my team is, uh, is I help lead community team and the community team is the people that actually occupy the buildings. They're the ones that there's the faces you see, the ones that take care of you, answer your questions. And so those roles became, they were much more um, defined, specific, and we had, you know, very specific ratios of like, Hey, if you are at 40,000 square feet, this is what you get. If you're at 60,000, this is what you get. If you're at 120, this is what you get. You know, and so I think that piece was laid out pretty well. Yeah. Um, and there was very like, uh, rigorous kind of expectations and like norms, you mm -hmm. know, that you did like a stand up every morning and you talked about what the plans were and who was moving in and who was moving out and, and, uh, and like what tours were coming in and just understanding like that whole rhythm. But, uh, you know, a huge part of, of it was like, also just establishing what is expected and what you can and can't do. So like, you know, my boss at the time, you know, he would do everything. And I was like, all right, look, man, you're running a, a multi-million dollar region now, and it's going to be much, much bigger than that soon. Uh, you can't do that anymore. Yeah. You know, and your boss doesn't really like it when you tell them they can't do something. Yeah. Um, and it was funny because like I was an operations guy and like I was selling. So when we were open 1920 McKinney, you know, I'm doing hard hat tours, like anything I can do. And I sold my first, you know, my first offices, my first week. You know, so I could always hold that over the sales guys just in case uh, or gals if they're slow. Um, but he like he's like, no more sales for you. You're not allowed to do that either. You know, and so, um, you know, I think we were really kind of carving out the roles. But even in that regard, like my relationship with my GM and how we ran operations uh, along with community was it was a bit different than any other region, too, because we worked much closer together. Right. And there's a lot more overlap, whereas it was much more defined. Like, hey, hey, you're the facilities guy. Just go take care of facilities. Yeah, yeah. And when you're growing that quickly and you're picking up locations, was the MO like, hey, here's a certain set of uh, data criteria. Any place that this data exists in Harmony, open a location, basically. Like, how did you know where to open and like how quickly they needed to start opening? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. Um, you know, like we had goals every year. So mm -hmm. like uh, for me, about nine months in, you know, we, the South originally was anything from like Virginia South 
over to Texas West was all part of the South. Okay. Now that kind of, we overgrew that pretty quickly. So about nine months in, we actually split it. I took over Texas as like the GM and, and then I had a lot more control over the plan, the budget, like where we're going. Um, and look, there is, is as much data as you want, you know? And so there's lots of things, there's easy markers. So like if you're within three miles of a whole foods, let's start talking. Like that's probably a great demographic. Um, but, but I think, uh, I remember seeing some stuff on Twitter from you is like, people are like, did you guys do any kind of data or modeling or anything? (laughs) It's like, Hey, I understand that a lot of people think we're probably just a bunch of dumbasses, and you know, like, how do you get away from this? But, um, at the end of the day, like you're taking, you can have as much data as you want, but someone's going to make a decision, Yeah, you know? And so like, it goes back to the same thing is like location, location, location. Like I can over, uh, I can overcome location maybe 10, 15%. Like if you have an incredible team, you can, you can overcome how good the location is, but maybe 10, 15%. That's a personal, uh, uh, opinion on that. But like, if you look at, let's say in the DFW area, what are our best locations? Well, I can tell you there's a theme that's going to keep coming out of here. Uh, you look at clear fork and you look at legacy West free parking, great locations, amenities that are walkable. So boom, 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 you're crushing it. Right. Um, and, and those are the themes that you really start seeing in the South, especially. And then uh, even out to like maybe LA, but parking was one of the greatest constraints for us because, you know, you do a per desk price and then you tell them you got $150 parking in downtown Dallas at Thanksgiving tower now too. And like, peace. Yeah. (laughs) I'll see you later, man. Like (laughs) I can afford to park my car. I can afford to buy the desk. Like you pick one. So, um, yeah, I think that is, uh, a huge piece of like the data criteria, but I mean, like anything you expect, like, Hey, what are the, what are the three year paybacks? What are IRR? What is the actual cash up front? What is, you know, like anything you want, like we had it, we had it for markets we we're going into. We spent lots of time with brokers walking it. Um, but it honestly comes down to like the simple things. Is it a great location or is it not? And is it, uh, you know, parkable and is it easy access? So like, I'll give you an example of one that didn't work out as great Sundance square. I picked that location with my team and I thought it was gonna be great. And it was not. Yeah. You know, and mostly I, I would attribute most of that to accessibility and parking. Yep. It's amazing. We've actually talked about this on other podcasts, but parking in Texas is like, if, if a Texan actually goes to like New York city, they don't mind not having a, like, they're obviously on vacation or whatever, but they don't mind not having a car. They'll walk like 30 blocks to dinner. They'll walk like, you know, to central park. But in Texas, if you cannot like pull up to a restaurant and be on the front curb right outside the front door, you will literally just go to the next restaurant. Um, yeah. I think like West 7th, you know, they've done well, but the fact that you have to park in a parking garage three levels high and walk down to the restaurant yep. is such a mind block for Texans. It's a bizarre thing. Um, well, I want to just continue on that for just a second. So um, I don't think that we work was filled with a bunch of idiots. You can't raise $15 billion with a bunch of hooligans, but you know, if we, I'm taking to the end and I'm going back, I think at the time they were going public, they were losing four or $5 billion a year. Um, the, the question's really more framed as was SoftBank already involved when you joined and like, what happens when somebody brings five, seven, $10 billion to the company and is like, spin this shit as quickly as you can and keep going. Like that's maybe where maybe the, did you guys model this versus like you were told like, spend this money, like we have to grow. Was it overwhelming as SoftBank kept just pumping more company uh, money into the company or was it more like freeing? Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful question. The, 
I believe I joined um, shortly before like the first like real tranche from SoftBank came in. Yeah. Um, and I think it was already in the works, but uh, all it did was just mash the gas pedal. You yeah. Know, it's like it, if you look at the economics of like a four building EBITDA um, and you go down to like a, you know, a great location in Austin or um, hell, like even in, in Salt Lake City or like wherever you want. Yeah. Um, great location. And if you looked at it, you're going to be thrilled with what you see, right? Like you're going to see uh, something really, really impactful there. Now, when you start adding the overhead of, you know, an incredibly large, you know, uh, construction design and development team, when you start adding like the marketing expectations of filling these buildings as fast as we build them, yep. you start adding all these other things, like those economics dwindle pretty quickly, obviously, yeah. right? Um, you know, and I see, I think you see a lot of uh, success on like the regional level and smaller levels where, you know, like, uh, like a Nick Clark and Common Desk yeah. doing, doing well and trying to figure out the formula. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it just created even more acceleration of being the, like a, the largest physical product on the planet. Basically. Yeah. Um, and every month you get, you get that like email saying like, Hey, we opened 40 locations this month and you're just like, you really think about it and it just feels mind boggling yeah. um, because I think the, I think what people underestimate is like the pure level of talent that we had at WeWork. Like it's unlike anything I've ever seen. Like you pick, pick a role, pick a role at any company. And I bet you we have someone as good or better, uh, at WeWork doing that same thing. Yep. And, um, so, you know, like what is, what is the, the repercussions of SoftBank? I think it came back to, um, creating something that has to move so fast. And when those things move so fast, the, 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 the discretion it takes to take time to make sure incentives are aligned, I think is really, really hard. And so like you see a company growing fast and you have a real estate team that is incentivized on signing of square, like lease, uh, square footage leased. Yeah. Great. Well, I got to go operate that the next 15 to 20 years and I can't fill it up, but they don't care. Right. They do care. Yeah. But, but incentives say they don't care, right? Like they're incentivized to go lease, whether it's a great location for us or not, you know, and I think that's like one of the truest things and uh, most absolute truths I've seen in my career now is like, it, it's almost impossible to like truly align incentives. Um, but incentives are so powerful and they, they're speaking 24, seven, 365. Uh, and it's, it is the story. Uh, I guess it informs the story that people are telling themselves when the leaders aren't there of, like, I just got to sign the square footage. I got to sign the square footage or sales just got to sell space, you know? Yeah. And so like, I had plenty of fights with my real estate team trying to force me to take stuff that I don't want to take um, because they got to hit their goals or my sales team trying to sell a whole building to uh, a fancy tech company at a, you know, a discount in like one of my best locations overall. And I'm fighting with them too, yeah. you know, because I saw myself as a steward of like the fiduciary responsibility to make sure that we're profitable for sure one day. Right. And so uh, I think those tensions were the hardest part of the acceleration, right? Yeah. Because I believed in our mission. Uh, I believed in the people that I worked with, you know, in the army, you learn, you know, like you don't fight wars for the country. You, you kind of do, but like you fight for the people next to you. Yeah. Right. And, and like, that's what embodies, I think, you know, so many of our values and we work was no different than that. Yeah. yeah. Um, when you were saying that, like you go to Austin, you have a four building EBITDA and you're looking at it and it looks great. And then you, I, I knew that y'all were you had started your own like furniture building company and had marketing and you're buying all these tech companies. Um, we don't have to go too be- deep into it, but when you're looking at that EBITDA and it looks great, is all this other stuff, stuff that you weren't in control of, like at that point, like that was coming over the top? Yeah, I mean, look, there's, um, 
I think they did a pretty good job actually of trying to shield um you know what you could see at a building level for your region yeah and then like how is burdened up there yeah you know is like uh they didn't necessarily do like a prorated share of everything so that it like uh equally burdened the building based on like the need but yeah. um uh you know I, I think a lot of those things were just distractions and i think one of the best things i've learned as a leader is i know what to i've learned what to ignore and not to worry about because it's not in my control yeah so i'm not going to worry about that um it's one of the hardest things to teach in the world though i tell you what like the amount of effort and stress and and anxiety from my team on hey here's the expectation here's what we're doing and they're like well i don't control sales so i literally had to come up with like my own construct of like okay this is how we're going to think about things now so every role we started doing this thing called you me we uh so with a director who might lead dfw this is what you do this is what i do this is what we do you know and um and then i did it for between them and sales between them and construction between them and real estate because you know the larger my region got the less i could do you know right. and so uh, i was empowering my team a lot and so there's you me we and then the other piece was like okay here's here's your buckets here's what you control here's what you influence and here's what you stay informed on and so like in enterprise sales you know we had a huge goal to become a 50 percent enterprise company yeah you know and so large companies taking large pieces of space across the world and uh and to do that, you had to have some loss leaders. And I had buildings that were loss leaders to get that foothold. So um, so I'd have to teach my team like, hey, on enterprise sales deals, like you need to stay well-informed. Mm-hmm. You can influence a little bit, but like most of the influence stays at my level or my boss's level. Yep. And, uh, and I think that was really hard because, you know, like they had so much pride and ownership of their, their buildings. And, you know, we had some good competition too of like who had you know, the, you know, the best, um, happiness scores for, for members or, um, or, you know, most profitable, like whatever it was at the building level, yep. you know? And so then they couldn't control stuff because we stuck an enterprise, you know, member in their, their building. That wasn't a great deal. And, um, you know, it, it blows up. Got so, it. Um, let's just talk just a little bit about kind of what the, you, we've kind of talked a little bit about it, but just like what a great location looked like. Like if you left today to go start your own co-working, yep what things mattered. And then I want to talk a little bit about what things mattered to the landlord. Mm. Um, so for y'all, what was like, if these things lined up, we knew we had a good location. And I know it depends on who the landlord is, what their situation is, but I'd be, as a landlord myself, I'm really curious what they were thinking as all this was going on. So let's start with what WeWork's successful location matrix look like in the South. I think there's... um well, there's tension here between what what was successful from New York and then like trying to, you know, I think influence that strategy, you know, locally. Like we wanted to be a local company wherever we could. Um, the what does the criteria look like? So, I mean, you can think of it from a couple of ways. There's like the there's like the financial kind of um, situation. There's the what the landlord wants. There's what uh, we want for our members. And there's simple things like. Hey, got to have great parking. Okay. You know, so like a high ratio of parking, um, ideally free. Uh, you know, we want to put as little cash in as possible. Obviously, you know, so like large TI packages, like very large TI packages, um, and uh, and accessibility. So like twenty four seven access, um, no limitations on on who comes through the lobby, like that kind of stuff. Because like the first things people ask will be like. Or you have some goofball in flip flops and board shorts cruising through my class A incredible yeah. lobby, where that might be okay in like a San Francisco and Dallas. Man, like 
a lot more hesitation on on the on the the look and feel that they're projecting by walking through a lobby that they just redid and spent a whole lot of money on you know and so uh i always found that piece fascinating but um you know they have a they have a brand that they're protecting yeah i believe and so uh, so those are things that made a lot of, uh, mattered a lot to me, like uh, really simple things. Like I would never, I never want my members to have more than one key card. So if you have an expectation that they need a key card for the elevator and parking, and then I have to give them another key card, that's not going to work for me. Yeah. You know, and so if that means I need a second reader for WeWork, we'll install it in the elevator. We'll install it wherever we need to, but it was all in pursuit of like, how do we create the most, uh, simple, uh, experience for them to get to their space. Yeah. You know, and like, as an example, I came here today and your podcast and your office are in two different buildings, yeah. right? Uh, well, there was no parking in the podcast one. And then I drove a little farther and saw Ford Capital. So I ended up going to the wrong building yeah. um, because I saw signage. Signage is another one. Um, but just getting people into the building is like one of the hardest things. Like how do you create an incredibly simple way to get from where I park my car to my actual space? And then signage. We fight like hell for signage. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, every building had a big we work in the yeah. corner it seemed like yeah. um yeah i was gonna say like fort worth for instance like we tried to do uh i tried to do something sooner in downtown fort worth and uh we'll just say for instance, i remember it was all over the news you all were trying to get a signage and they wouldn't let you put we'll, it up. we'll say the vast family was not supportive of uh of our signage request yeah well it doesn't seem like they're supportive of much going on downtown right now but we don't have to talk about that <laughs> um did it matter how um was it just uh, maybe uh, density of population. Did it matter how close you were to the next WeWork? No. Okay. No. I mean, look, we tried to we tried to do feedback on um, on on location. So there's markers, of course. Uh, like a Whole Foods is a great marker uh, for us to understand. But like New York sees this is a lot of like walkability. You know, yeah. do people live there, and then um, you know they want to be in the CBD, right? Like, yeah. like that's kind of like the mentality. That's what's worked so well. And then you go to like a Thanksgiving Tower in Dallas, and um, you know, like that's not where people want to be. You yeah. know, it's not where people live. You know, and so I, people. My favorite stat to use for people that don't understand is, um, hey, we're a metro of seven and a half million ish in DFW. Uh, any idea how many people live downtown Dallas? like 12,000 people. Yeah, it's not a lot. 12,000 people. It's unreal, right? Yeah. And so like the density matters a lot. Uh and and I but like there's nothing more important to me in the south than accessibility. Yeah. So that's parking or uh I thought maybe valet, valet is not that doesn't work. Um so it's just literally parking, how easy is it? How much does it cost and how fast can I get to the office? And did it matter on the build out that it kept that kind of industrial cool vibe or did every location have its own kind of feeling and vibe yeah there's a little bit of both but definitely trying to keep like hey like we want tall ceilings but not too tall Mm -hmm. you know because if you go past you know 14 feet or so now you just think about the drywall costs yeah you know if you're doing um we had places that had kind of like a second like a mezzanine type loft or whatever that's overlooking office space so now you have like these open air glass and aluminum boxes that people can literally just look down into your office. Yeah. It's terrible. Like, yeah. Um, and so we do. We did have one like that here in in, uh, in Plano, actually. Yeah. Uh, it was pretty cool, actually. But also, I would never want to do one like that again. Yeah, yeah. You know, so like you want very constrained, you know, costs. We got very good at you know estimating and building out space as well. Uh, like top, I mean, just incredible development and construction team. But the you know at the end of the day, um. There's just nothing more important than just accessibility. How much does it cost for a desk and how easy can I get to it? Yeah. yeah. 
Um, I know y'all were doing a lot of enterprise sales, but you also were doing kind of maybe call it more consumer sales, just a one-off guy or a girl and, and their laptop. Um, was there anything you learned, uh, just about that community building where, you know, maybe tenants loved it or maybe, uh, would there ever be like discrepancies or like, Hey, we're, com- we're competition or like, I don't want you looking in my office. Like not just we work, this exists like across the board. I think about this all the time is like, how did people actually think about it? Yeah. I mean, look, we, our goal was always to bring people together. Yeah. You know, in, in any way. And that was, um, that was what drew most people there in the first place, you know? And so like, you know, here in the South, especially like or Texas, you know, it was always my job. Like I would think like fill the building first. You yeah. know? And so economic wise, of course, get as many dollars as I can from filling the building, but there's nothing more important than filling the building first. Because if you walk in and you see people in the space and they're like, they're doing business and they're enjoying what they're doing and uh, you can just feel like the energy in there, there's nothing better than that. That's what sells and lets you raise prices, you know, as you go on. Um, but yeah, like there's every, every like kind of crappy, uh, situation you can think of from, yeah. you know, people, uh, being mean to others who overran in a conference room to, you know, um, you know, inappropriate things after hours yeah. in conference rooms or, you know, other places like people throwing parties when they shouldn't, you know, and just doing things that they shouldn't. But like overall on average, like people are incredibly kind. Yeah. Um, most people join hoping to be able to help their own business grow and help other businesses grow and meet people and. And I think that was, uh, that was a theme and a culture that we, uh, we, we stay true to every day. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love it. Um, okay. So we get started, like we're off on a rocket ship. Was there a point where you maybe started getting like, as the media started really highlighting Adam and some of his antics and smoking weed in the office and flying his G650 all over the world, which actually listened to an episode, uh, he did a recent interview like two weeks ago that I, I listened to the whole thing. I think he did a really good job explaining himself and I know the media can sometimes take it, but maybe let's just hear it from the horse's mouth. Like, was there a point that you maybe remember waking up or going, I'm not in Kansas anymore? Like this is kind of turning into something different. Um, I think the circus around the IPO, like, yeah. I, I won't say it was just, not necessarily just Adam, but just the circus in general, like the, the whole to do, um, I think that's when I became like a little more disillusioned, but also like when we're being. Uh, when you're, when you're fighting against things that, um, you know, some of the growth that just doesn't feel, I won't say comfortable because I'm not necessarily looking for like this, like comfort level, but that doesn't make sense. You're like, Hey, they're like, let's say you're doing 20 million and they want you to double next year. And, but you can only find space, you know, one or two spots in Dallas or Austin. That's where you really want to be, especially Austin. And then everything else you have to just kind of fill in and in a Houston, right. Um, where you know, prevailing, uh, you know, vacancy rates are 20% plus like, yeah, I can go check the box for you, but I don't want to. And, yeah. and I think the other piece is like, and we, we learned this and, you know, I think they continue to learn this, but, um, you know, just taking long-term lease obligations versus like management contracts and, and stuff like that. Like I was fascinated with the management contract, um, approach. And like, one of the big things I want to do is like, what's like, what are the most, um, what are the most common kind of management contract agreements you know what kind of waterfall like how, do, how does this cascade down between uh us creating upside for landlord and ourselves and we all share in that benefit and and we had some in um in, in my region which was wonderful and they they had done very well and so it was my like something i really really wanted to do was like how do we take this incredible data set we have across the world 
let's, let's take all the uh, historicals and let's go run them through a model showing the management and see how it would have done for landlords and ourselves. And I think, yeah. I think that could have been really, really interesting. And I think they're really moving to the, towards that model. I don't, I don't stay like super close to any of it uh, anymore, but like, um, I think management contracts are like really the future in a lot of ways versus yeah. just like tremendous long-term lease obligations. Yeah. yeah. Cause that was always the, the, uh, the naysayers would say like, you have this lease, the landlord's going to know your margins at the end of the lease. And when it comes time to renewal, they're just going to raise that lease enough to cut that margin back to a normalized rate. Um, that was kind of the, you know, the thought. Yeah. I mean, I did some re- lease renewals and like, that wasn't necessarily the case. Yeah. You know, um, so I, it just depends. Um, I mean, it's been a crazy few years too. So like, who knows sure. how it's all working now with the pandemic. And well, and I actually skipped this part. I'm going to go back a second. Yeah. So we talked about what mattered to, to, um, to we work, what mattered from the landlord? Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> it's, uh, you talked about like consistency of the building and feeling the vibe, but like from lease terms to which floors you could take to like, what were they hesitant on? What did they love? It probably evolved over time as we work became more known, but what okay. was, okay. So my favorite conversation, I don't know if this is, uh, uh, that I had on real estate was with Jerry Jones. So like I got to sit down and talk real estate with Jerry Jones one time. And that was really fascinating because, um, I think his questions were so grounded in, um, uh, like reality, like what landlords care about and what things cost and like, what image does it portray? And so, um, and I just remember like these questions always stay in my head and it was simple things. It's like, okay, well, uh, when do all your people come in? When do they leave? Uh, are they going to be creating, um, a 15 minute, 20 minutes, uh, delay to get out of the parking garage to get in the parking garage, because that's not an experience I want any of my people, you know, at any of my real estate ever go through. Um, how often do they use elevators? Are they coming in and out all the day? Do you have any kind of data usage on that? And, you know, and so I think there's this idea of, again, image, like what kind of brand am I portraying here? What kind of signage do you want? Because if you think we work signage is going to overtake anything having to do with, you know, our brand, you know, as a family and as the Cowboys and, and everyone else, it's like, yeah, good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> good luck with that. You know? And so, um, and I think there's a lot of themes that really ring true here. Uh, obviously like there's the financial, hard financial questions like, Hey, you guys have a lot of lease obligations. Are you guys going to just disappear one day? Are you going to, um, are you going to go bankrupt? Like, uh, Regis did in the, you know, the, what the early nineties or early two thousands or whatever. Um, you know, so I think there's, uh, our, our solvency, there's questions around like all obviously like legal entities, like how do you set that stuff up? But at the end of the day is what rent am I getting and how long that was probably the biggest ones of, um, their side because rent is a is a fluid number yeah we'll give you more ti if you pay more rent yeah and so like then you're artificially inflating rents uh potentially for bigger ti packages so we have less cash out um and in constrained markets like in austin or san francisco like that could actually make an impact that ripples you know meaningfully let's take a quick break to highlight this episode's sponsor juniper square If you aren't familiar with Juniper Square, it's an easy to use all-in-one investment management software designed specifically for real estate owners. We have been using it at Fort Capital for several years now, and it has completely revamped the experience we're able to provide our investors through reporting, management, and efficiency. Here's a bit more on how Fort Capital utilizes the platform. You know, your, your, your tenants are your customers, but your real customers are your investors. And the real estate business, the lifeblood is the ability to have capital. It's an expensive game and being able to treat them, um, 
you know, like royalty. And when you have a lack of resources or you're smaller, it's very tough to be able to report in a way that, again, those high net worth individuals are expect or used to seeing. And so for years, we had either tried building stuff from scratch. It never worked. We would try hiring these companies that, that wanted to charge us a quarter million dollars a year for investor reporting. And it just never worked. And when we found Juniper, um, it aligned with our mission to provide our investors not only great returns, but a great experience in achieving those returns, which goes back to transparency, communication, their ability to know where their money is. You can check out episode 37 to listen to my full conversation with Brandon or visit cjunipersquare.com for more information. That's S-E-E junipersquare.com. And now back to the show. It's kind of misunderstood. There's a, you know, a lot of people would say it was just a real estate company taking leases, but like the IPO and the narrative that that SoftBank and, you know, a lot of the later press was showing is like, no, this is going to, it's a tech company. Um, was it a real estate company? Was it a tech company? And if it wasn't either, was it going to become a tech company? Yeah. Like I think, um, were we ever a tech company? I don't think so. Yeah. You know, uh, do I believe we're absolutely like a tech enabled services company or tech enabled? Absolutely. Yeah. No question. Um, and I think there's some really incredible work going on there. Uh, but you know, like you can see why anyone would want to go after a tech you know, like, I guess, moniker or, or characterization just because, you know, like the valuation is so much better that way. Um, but yeah, we're a real estate company. It, honestly, we tell you we're a community company. Like we're about bringing people together, helping each other, uh, helping businesses grow. I mean, one of the best experiences I got to do at, at WeWork and be a part of was uh, we created something called Veterans and Residents. Uh, we did it with eventually Patriot Bootcamp, but then we uh, moved over to Bunker Labs and we created this basically six month program where you just apply as a veteran, get free office space, free mentorship, free programming. Um, and, uh, and we do it every six months and we did it. We ended up growing from one location in Denver to, I think there are 20 plus locations across the country, yeah. you know? And so, uh, that's the kind of company I tell you. we are. Yeah. Okay. I just want to spend a little time on Adam. Um, you know, it, there's a book good to great. And it talks a lot about the, the great, great businesses, like don't have founders that are so polarizing and um you know again i'm speaking from the outside world looking in it seemed and 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 i got to give adam some credit when you listen to him speak it's like he's a he's a very unique character um um was was he a great leader and did that change over time um like what was your thoughts on on adam was he a distraction to the company at some point or was that all in the media it's a good question um like he was a visionary for sure. And I think that's probably like the the greatest impact that he had on the company. And um, between being a visionary and a deal maker, the guy, I mean, some of the partnerships that he put together or, or worked, um, worked to do or like some of the thoughts he had, I think were incredible. Uh, was he a distraction? I can tell you, I can't speak for like a New York when you're like that close to like the mothership. Yeah. It's just dif- different than anywhere else. So like, I believe it was an absolute blessing um, being in Texas, yeah, you know, so I was far, far, far enough away to help stabilize and kind of create, um, the culture I wanted to within like the, we work culture here. And so was he a distraction? Uh, I found him not to be a distraction. Okay. Um, you know, at the very end, I think, I think he did the right thing and stepped, stepped down. Yeah. Um, and that's when he started becoming a distraction was right around that time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so I think from my standpoint, like I, he, he led in a way that, um, 
you know, I saw him once a month on the all company meeting or whatever we did. And, and I thought he played his role very well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the retreats where they would have like huge concerts. Was there ever a moment where you're like, we we're spending like five to $7 million on like a company <laughs> retreat. Now you could say, yeah, but we have thousands of employees. That's kind of what it costs. It would be much less, but was that kind of weird? It's a little weird. I mean, it's definitely different. I'm, I'm, I'm a little introverted personally. Yeah. Um, you know, I like my time to recharge by myself, uh, and that you were expected to be there, you know? And, um, I mean, I had a blast. It was unbelievable. Just, you know, seeing so many people that you've done like hard things with where, you know, like working on projects with a friend from Israel or, uh, or the UK or Australia and getting to see them in person, like other GMs, I thought was incredible. Uh, yeah, of course, like financially, I'm a little thrifty and I don't know if I'd ever be able to spend that much money on bringing everyone together, but like, I have a hard time faulting the intention behind it yeah, because, yeah. uh, yeah. Did people get in trouble and do things that they shouldn't and all that stuff? Yeah. Of course. Um, happens at every company, every well. company. Was there probably more alcohol than there should be? Um, a lot of times probably, yeah. uh, but like the, it was, I, I, I loved it. I mean, I really enjoyed the time. I enjoyed most of the, like. Uh, the learning that they provided and be able to, to, to like get better as a company. So, uh, yeah, man, I'm really hard on that one. Like I see, I feel like both sides. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, we'll spend a little more time on, on the IPO and then we'll move into what you're doing today. So the IPO starts coming out. I think the most famous part was like the day that the S one was released. And I think it mentioned like Adam Newman 78 times or whatever it was, it was some word that was. Um, and that's where you kind of said things started to get a little weird, $47 billion valuation. Um, so what was like the team's initial reaction? Obviously there's probably blinded by, we're about to make a lot of money if this goes public at 47 billion. So I got to give like anybody in that situation, the benefit of the doubt that like you have been in it so long, you're believing, like, it's hard to not, the world said you're worth 47 Goldman, I think, or one of the banks had said y'all might be worth 90. Um, or one of the big banks did. Yeah. Um, so like what, what is, give me like the short story of what was happening around IPO time and how it was kind of played out from your perspective. Yeah. I think there was, you know, like this mounting excitement, obviously, Yeah. everyone's, um, you know, hoping for a payday and, uh, you know, I don't think anyone thinks it's the finish line. It's just a, it's a major milestone. Right. Yeah. And, uh, I can't speak for a lot of other people, but for myself, like I had been I'd become pretty wary of the valuation yeah. you know, and, and like, I think the whole time I'm, I was at WeWork, it was, it was always like cautious optimism of, yeah, you know, I really hope I make some money off of this. This would be wonderful. Um, I worked my tail off and then ultimately like all my stock has expired now and I, it was $0, yeah. you know, and like that, that sucks is like a pretty senior leader. Um, but like, would I do it again? I would do it again a million times over. I love it. Uh, a million times over. No question. Uh, no hesitation at whatsoever. Uh, because like the, again, like the, the level of talent and the people I can, I can reach out anything you want. I've got a person probably in that tech company that you love or, or like in that geograph or that, that state city country, it's pretty incredible. But, um, like, I think, I think people started getting wary and not understanding, like not truly understanding because. I don't think people take enough time to understand like what a stock option is and like, how did the valuation actually occur? What is a strike price? What does it mean for us to, uh, to go? Like, is there a, is it going to be held up for, you know, this many months, you know, um, our price is going to go down when it, the lockup finally expires and all the, you know, 
stock starts flooding in. Uh, you know, and so I think people were optimistic, but not necessarily clairvoyant in, in like what was happening. Yeah, yeah. What is it like to work at a company that goes from like here, then the IPO comes out and it was like all the media talked about for a couple months and it wasn't necessarily a bunch of positive stuff. What's it like working for a company when the world is, I don't want to say, you know, laughing, but like the world is making a mockery and you're sitting here going like, I've worked my ass off for five years. I have an incredible team that I'd go to bat for. We've done everything we could to make this company successful. And the world is now saying this, like, how do you motivate people and stay positive and moving forward when you can't, you know, even open up your iPhone and not see something on WeWork? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, you do really, you work really hard to help them avoid the noise yeah. um, and just ask them, like, I think this is just where being a, like a very human centric leaders, you know, matters of like, Hey, do you want to be here? Like, just because of what they're talking about there, does that change why you're here? And, uh, and like the impact that you're making, you know, um, and, you know, ultimately I got to say like when the new kind of regime came in, um, with Marcelo and SoftBank and, and, um, you know, the new CEO and all them, I think they did a wonderful job outlining, Hey, here's where we are. Um, this is where we're going. And this is our identity. So it was very clear, like when they did the first kind of rollout, it was, hey, y'all, we're a, we are a real estate company. Yeah. You know, here are the things that matter to us. Here's, um, here's our values. Here's where we're going. And I like, I was actually thoroughly impressed, um, you know, very clear on like, here, here's where compensation is going. There will be layoffs. And I just, I thought they did a pretty wonderful job yeah. of, um, of like trying to write the ship and create stability where it could feel like you know, the floor is just falling out from under you. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about the IPO that actually just happened a couple of weeks ago, but maybe kind of, um, you know, one more. Well, let's, let's talk about that for a second. They just went public. You probably still have friends that are there. Um, I truly believe that WeWork is actually going to be a really great company in the world. Um, I agree. And, you know, we could talk, chat for an hour on why. Um, but can you speak at all to maybe some friends that you've heard from or kind of the state of the business today, what you know and what you can share? Yeah, I think the, I mean, these are going to be just generalizations, yeah. but um, look, I think it was pretty beneficial for most of the people that stuck through kind of the turnaround. Yeah. Um, now, it could have been a lot more fruitful if the pandemic hadn't hit and, you know, um, and, you know, they actually continued on the trajectory that they were, you know, 2019 and prior. Um, but I, I have very optimistic outlooks of where they're going. They continue to, I think, um, you know, get fit and, and offer more things that, uh, are valuable for customers, you yeah. know? So like they're, I don't even know what the, the, like the real names are, but it's like the all access pass that you can go, you pay a couple hundred bucks and you can use the WeWork anywhere in the world. Yeah. I think that's pretty amazing. And, um, and then you can see like why scale is so important there. Right. Yeah. If I'm going to, you know, Paris or Tokyo or whatever, it'd be great to have a place to be able to, you know, just pop in for a few hours and do yeah, work. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I'm very optimistic overall, like long-term, I think they have um, a great leadership team and and like they they know where they're going and and I believe they're going to get there. And when they made the transition and brought in Marcelo and the new CEO, who was, wasn't he the CEO of like Brookfield or some yeah, big, yep. um, from the time they took over, how quickly were they re-communicating back to the team 
you know, here, here's the new plan. Was that days, weeks, months? How quickly did it happen? Um, man, I want to say they jumped, like Marcelo jumped in and I want to say like 30, 30, 45 days. I think they kind of sent out just like, Hey, we're going to jump in. We're going to learn everything. We're going to put a plan together. We'll, we'll, we'll talk to you soon. You yeah. know? And, and I want to say I was really impressed. I think it was 30 days or 40. I, I, I don't recall exactly, but, um, I can just tell you how I felt. And I remember walking away like, Hey, I'm, I'm pretty impressed. So far. Yeah. That's awesome. All right, man. Thank you for sharing. Uh, that's fascinating. And like I said, um, obviously what you read in the media can be very distorted. Um, and I truly believe we work is actually going to be a great business and for what it's worth, uh, you have a big part in that. Um, thanks. So, all right. So now, um, you left, we work and now you are doing something, uh, I would say totally different. You are, uh, embarking on a HVAC roll up, we'll say. Sure. Explain what you're doing, kind of what the idea and thesis is behind it. Why, why this? Yeah. So, I mean, first step we we did, we bought our first HVAC company, me and two close friends, um, same guys I did the property management company with. Okay. Uh, they actually end up at WeWork with me too. So just <laughs> okay. like we love growth. The band's and, back together. And the, the band's back together. So, um, so having a lot of fun there, you know, HVAC's first step, that's, um, we'll call it like the service side of like a much bigger vision. Uh, and that, that vision, like we're calling it homework and essentially, you know, we are trying to, um, you know, create enough data around a home to make it much easier to manage and you know, operate. So like, I just think home services, if you want things fixed or renovations or, or whatever, is just way too hard out there. Mm -hmm. So, um, so our approach is we have three things that we're looking at is, is data technology and service. And, um, and so right now what we're doing is we're trying to collect enough data. So we're actually using some of our HVAC techs to, to collect data. So they collect data about air filter sizes, your equipment. And, and so the idea would be like that lives in a portal. Um, and as we collect more then I can give you easy quotes and provide you service when you need it, just at the touch of a button. Um, you know, ideally building a platform of trust, you know, similar to Amazon, how they, you know, they started off with very simple things, books, DVDs, things that are easy to fulfill. And they did all in house. Um, you know, we're thinking similarly of like, how do we build a platform for homeowners and, uh, and start in house, like skilled trades, plumbing, HVAC, electrical, we'll do in house. I think there's a tremendous amount, uh, ability to build trust there and then potentially add, um, you know, third party fulfillment later on, kind of like Amazon did, you know? And so, uh, but there's just going to be this huge piece of data. So we get data every time we visit, um, we're going to be talking, uh, we're looking at home inspections too, like what a rich you know, source of data when you could go into a home when it's about to be purchased yep. or new home construction. So now you have you know floor plans, you've got surveys, you got drawings. Um, so if you wanted to redo your master bathroom, uh, I already have all the dimensions. I can give you a rough quote. You can pick your materials like Amazon, like right in a cart and uh, deliver it. And then you know, we can add subscriptions if you want filter subscriptions or pest control or, you know, fertilizer, like that's kind of the big vision. So HVAC is kind of our playground yeah. to learn how to fulfill that. And like the first thing we're doing right now is just creating, uh, can you schedule online? So super simple. Um, so anyone can schedule online with our service now, which sounds super simple and it's actually super hard to do, especially at scale. And then yeah. the second one is, could you get an instant quote based on your unique home address? Yeah. Um, you know, just take a picture of like the the serial number model number on your machine. And, and we're trying to get you a quote within 60 seconds or instant instantly, obviously you got to confirm it based on any other kind of conditions when you get to the house, just because you don't know what the actual problem is. Ideal. Yeah. Well, 
if they're just replacing a system, you have, okay. to, start, you have to start with like super simple. Got it. Hey, if you want to replace your system, this is what it costs. But like people, we just went to a house the other day and it's like this big Southern plantation. They've got like hidden rooms, like behind like bookcases and stuff. <laughs> and they got an AC unit in there. It's like, what, what the hell are you doing here? Like, how am I supposed to service this thing? Um, so you just never know. Uh, you got to add like, um, I guess a little bit of the labor costs in there that may not be you know standard, but that's the vision uh, of homework. And HVAC is kind of the first service step because it's super simple. Not super simple, but it's relatively simple. It's the same 10 to 15 things that are wrong every single time um, for the most part. And uh, and so we're trying to figure out how do we apply some of these things there and then just continue to expand. And every house has an HVAC, at least in the South. Uh, yeah. And it's it's uh, in Texas could literally be life or death. So, okay. So uh, just so I make sure I heard you correctly, the initial, you know, phase one is we're just buying an existing service business. Yep. These companies install HVACs and maintain them. Correct. Um, and from there, we are going to start layering in technology that will allow us to start learning more from what we're doing day to day. Correct. And then from that data, we open up a whole new world of kind of what's possible with inside the home. Exactly. Um, when you're looking for these HVAC businesses, uh, is there something that matters? Do they have to be a certain size at this point, a certain amount of customers, region, like uh, I mean, there were certainly criteria that we wanted yeah. <laughs> to do. Uh, I think the market has has suggested that that's um, it can be a little more challenging. I mean, we wanted at least like a million EBITDA uh, on these companies, so you know that's going to put you more at like five million plus in revenue on average. Uh, that's our ideal target. Yeah. Because um, if you start getting to like, especially like two and a half to three million in EBITDA, like the the multiples just start accelerating significantly, and then you're fighting against PE like me- meaningful PE firms. Um, and that's not the space we want to play in. We'd much rather have like a just a decent base to start from, and then we can grow pretty fast organically. We believe. Um, so, I mean, our first one we only bought it was like one, a little over a million in revenue. Okay, you know, so just just literally something small to start with and um, and build off of. How is it? How is a company that's a million in revenue valued? Just yeah, I mean, typically around you know three. I think you can get between three, three and a half x multiple. Okay. Um, you know, on we, EBITDA. Yeah, on EBITDA. Uh, or, you know, seller's discretionary earnings, like however they want to actually, uh, you know, play it just yeah. because, you know, they like to do a lot of ad back. So you got to fight them on all of that stuff on what what the real number is. But, yeah. uh, you know, we end up on this one, we actually got a great deal. We end up doing, I think, just uh, right around two and a half yeah. um, multiples. So got a great deal. Owner's been incredible. We're about a month in so far. And, uh, and yeah, looking to grow. So had having some technicians join us here over the next a week or two. We're pretty excited to add. And then, um, you know, off to the races for next year. Our, um, is, is the owner maybe in that one or your criteria, are you wanting them to kind of stay on board for a little bit after close or are y'all just taking over? Yeah. I mean, we 30 days is pretty typical. Yeah. Um, but I mean, he's been wonderful in, in that, like, I feel like he's a, he's a mentor or guide if we need it at all. So like, yeah. if I want to call him six from, months from now, he's going to pick up the phone. Yeah, yeah. You know? And so that's the relationship I want. I don't want him in the business though. Yeah. Like, um, I think uh, one thing I've learned over and over and over again is like, nobody likes long transitions. Yeah. Saying like, oh, 60 days, that sounds great. And then you're like day 15, you're like, son of a, like, just get out. Yeah. I don't like, I just need to do it myself. I yeah. need to do it myself and I'll call you if I have problems. And um, it is one of the, man, that's one of the lessons I feel like I learned over and over and over again of uh, like, nobody likes long transitions and then defining what long means, um, continues to be like an evolutionary thing for me because 
you know, you're like 60 days. No, okay. No, 30 days. And you're like, no, two weeks. I think two weeks, like a two week notice for leaving jobs. I feel like that might've come from a lot of like, um, uh, practice, like a lot of repetition saying like, Hey, you know, staying a month after you say you're done or ready to move on too long. Yeah. So two weeks might be like the perfect of, uh, like in-person kind of transition. And then like, Hey, I can call you after that. And, and even people that, you know, know when somebody's put a two week notice in, it depends on the position and how long they've been there and the, the reason that they're leaving. But like 24 hours after they've said that it's like the mindset of the team is already like we've moved on. Absolutely. Unless there's just, it's some unique position. So I can totally kind of get that. Um, yeah. People, you know, eat up as much time as you give them. But uh, if you give two weeks, it probably happens. A yeah. Lot they want to get to their new norm. Like, yeah. hey, what's the new norm? Like, how do I make sure I navigate this well? And even at the last company I was at, like, uh, when we decided I was leaving, um, man, it was, it was in November. And we're like, oh, through the end of the year. And I'm like, okay, that sounds nice. But like, and it went from, that was like 70 or no, uh, almost 60 days to like, guys, two weeks now. Like, yeah. uh, I think we're done here. Just be available for phone call. And, you know, and I think that was actually the best for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Can you speak just a little bit that, you know, especially it's a big topic right now, but you're in the blue collar industry. Um, and you know, the, 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 uh, the momentum in America right now is that a lot of Americans don't want to do blue collar work like they used to. The flip side of that is you look at what blue collar folks are getting paid these days, and it's a lot more than a lot of tech jobs in some um, aspect. So can you just speak to your, I know it's only been a couple months, but what is labor like? Um, and I, and part of, I would imagine part of you having to be successful is almost like making blue collar work cool to be in. Like, have you thought about that? I've thought about it so much. <laughs> so I can tell you like the big vision. This is like, this would be my dream. Um, ideally is, is, um, is creating this as like a destination type role. Because the way I think about it, there's something I love about Amazon and that is it's created more millionaires than any other um, entity in the history of the world. You know, and so I love that idea of like kind of giving back and, and creating value for others. And I honestly think that, uh, especially in the skilled trades, um, skilled trades, and then, I mean, you could probably go to just about any trade, honestly, yeah. at this point. Uh, I think there's that possibility too. Like, how do you create something that, uh, that is a path to maybe that first million dollars in revenue and make it sexy, like getting to, to run your own business. And so I do think a lot about that. I think about how do you start as a technician? Um, I think about my time in the army where I'm like, okay, how do I get big enough where I could literally do like an army or military recruiting, you know, uh, attack strategy on like high schools and, and, um, and like underserved communities and people that don't get, you know, like the opportunities that you think and show them a path of like, Hey, you want to make 80 K, uh, two years from now, if you're willing to work hard and be kind to people, yeah. um, and are willing to learn, well, you can do 80 K in two years. Okay. And then you want to see a path to six figures. You want to see a path to more than that. Well, this is how you do it. And so, um, you know, for us, like we're thinking about how do we make that path super simple of, Hey, uh, for HVAC specifically, here's maybe the eight steps that you can be as a HVAC technician, um, an HVAC one or HVAC two, HVAC three, whatever. And you come in and you, you know, you do so many calls on your own, you get that promotion to level two, you get 10 five-star reviews, you get that promotion to the next one. So that's kind of the program that we're trying to create because I think you have to make it so self-evident for people and then get them excited in the vision, because if they think they're going to do it without working hard, then like, I'm not really interested in yeah. it, you know? And so, but how do I show you that 
this could be better for you than, than you ever thought, um, without the college debt, without, you know, like all these other aspects. And one of my partners, he, um, you know, he, he served a, like a church mission in, uh, in South America. And he said, one of the coolest things about how they do business there is when you come out of high school, uh, there is a fork in the road and it is a trade or it is college and they are seen exactly the same. Yeah. There is no devaluing or lesser than one way or the other. And we've created this narrative here that I think is completely opposite to yeah. that, where I'm not going to say college isn't uh, valuable, but more and more companies are not requiring college degrees. Um, and even in my last job, you know, it's very similar in a lot of ways. Like I did a high volume recruiting and it was in real estate. So you had to get a license. So our strategy was how do we find incredible humans, help them get licensed and then have them start with us. Yep. You know, and so I think we will have a similar approach um, through HVAC of how do we find the in- most incredible humans that are willing to work, that are kind to people and they want to learn and grow and, uh, and show them the path to 80K and then beyond. Yeah. I think I said this on a podcast the other day. Um, I think the next trillion dollar company is literally who can make blue collar work cool again in America because it is it's fun to talk about the metaverse and tech and all these cool things going on. But a real estate guy, I look around the world and I'm like, we have to maintain all this stuff that we've built. And at the end of the day, when your air conditioner isn't working, I think you would rather your Facebook account not work for an hour or you know a day right? than your air conditioner not work for a day. And so the opportunity is enormous. Um, Re- really quick on that note, did you know, uh, this is something I just learned recently and it's super fascinating, uh, uh, like happiness rates of skilled trades is higher than just about any other job in the world. So 90, almost 90% show that they're uh, satisfied or extremely satisfied. You know, and that's based on um, like Angie's List, like uh, 2021 research. And I just found that to be because they find uh, the reason for satisfaction is they feel meaning and purpose in their job every single day. When like, when I come and help a family who's dying of heat basically in Texas with little kids, like, how can you not feel fulfilled after like helping them take care of that? Yep. You know? And so, um, I don't know. I found that like, I think there's true purpose and meaning as people search more for that and realize yep. that they can make great money, make an impact and like have all the things. Yep. I mean, and I mean, there's just so many ways to improve the business. I mean, it's typically run by again, no offense to boomers, but there's just not a lot of technology. It's very still like hop in a truck, show up, go to Home Depot, buy some parts. I'm not saying that's bad, but there's ways for the modern era person to enjoy the workflow uh, throughout the day. Sure. Um, just real quick. So you're, you're, you're buying the actual service, let's call it the blue collar business, but then you're also building tech. Yeah. How are you building the tech? Are you building it? Do you have a tech team? Have you started? Like, how are you thinking about, cause it's almost like two different things you're kind of working on. Yeah. They're going in parallel for sure. Because like the way I think about it is, um, you know, kind of like a, a circle or flywheel of you have like the data, the tech and the service. You know, so like we need to build up the data um, library more or less. And then the, the tech enables that data to create great service. And then when the service comes out, then they're validating the, like more data. So as an example, if I gave you a quote for a new AC system for $10,500, um, you know, so that's, that's the tech, that's the service, or that's the tech that I just put out to you. And then I go out and service and I actually find out, hey, it's, it's $11,700. I was off by 1200. Well, that's not a um, that's not like a a range of of accuracy that I'm satisfied with. Mm-hmm. So that just feeds the data again, where it says, "Hey, based on this home, you know, he has a 1980s, you know, brick built, three bedroom, two bath, you know, slab foundation. Hey, we need to add just a little bit more on that for next time." And then that 
again back to attack back yeah. to the service and it's just like this flywheel. beautiful uh yeah flywheel going back and forth and so we are doing that concurrently right now where you know the hvac the primary thing is just transition right now you know transition make sure we have full ownership in that and then like small tweaks and then we'll start um you know taking more pieces but like we are taking the you know the data down like how do i start with something like a an, an air filter subscription so it shows up every 60 days 90 days for you because i have the the um you know the sizes or you call in and i don't have to ask what kind of system you have because i already took the data down and so uh so that is yeah that is the approach of just the flywheel and so the data we have no tech team besides my partner he knows how to code yeah um and i'm dangerous enough to put like no code and some code together um so we're just we're just piecing it together right yeah. now um to validate and uh and then we will probably go raise money next summer there's a vc listening to this <laughs> here you go i was gonna say if you if you end up raising money this is super interesting i'd love to hear about it i'll, I'll get just one thing came to mind i wanted to tell you um i went to a thing called singularity university hmm. in silicon valley in 2018 that peter diamantis puts on it's the big moonshot guy and he was talking about blue collar trade and they had this whole session on what might get people interested in the future. And I just, I'll never forget this. Uh, maybe you've heard of this, maybe you haven't, but he was talking, I think the example they used was like an elevator technician, you know, Thyssen Krupp. Currently to become one of those, it's a lot of training. Um, as the products are getting updated, you're constantly having to be retrained. Um, you know, it's a very specialized position and um, you know, it makes good money, but it requires a lot of work and their whole thing, how they thought, um, they brought up augmented reality and they said, um, what will happen in the future is you won't have to get near as trained. You'll just wear these glasses. And when you are looking at the, uh, the, you know, the system in the elevator, it will project onto you. The, the augmented reality will project onto the physical system and it'll say things like, turn this dial, do this. And you'll just be following this kind of thing that the computer is telling you to do. And in reality, what he was saying is like anybody could become an elevator technician within a week, as long as you know how to follow the, it's almost like a game and they'll be putting a lot of money into the augmented reality. So it just projects on. So when I think of like an HVAC thing, if a technician is out there on the field and they open up the, you know, the, the motor box or whatever, and now this augmented is posted on top of it. And it's just saying, Hey, move that wire here, do that here. Um, I don't know what that means. Maybe it's something for you to chew on, but it's it made so much sense that, oh my gosh, one, it's like gamification, which we know the millennials and Gen Z love. Yep. <laughs> Two, it makes things like you don't have to put people through these two-year trainings and then every time the product updates, retrain, 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 you literally just learn how to follow what the augmented tells you to do. Um, obviously, that could be a long way away. I don't know. Um, but it was one of the coolest ideas I've heard in a long time. Yeah. And it makes a lot of sense. No, that's amazing. I, yeah, I love the thought process there. I think yeah. the, I, don't know, I saw some tweet the other day and, um, someone was like, man, for all these people building construction or skilled trade software out there is like, have you ever been to a site? Because it like, they never want to adopt it. Right. Yeah. Like, um, and it's fascinating. And then you have like, obviously for an elevator or something like that, there's a lot of regulatory concerns as well. Um, I love the approach, but man, I think there's, there's like a, there's part of just like humans problem solving yeah. that you just don't know, like the parts different than what you expected. And it's not a Thyssen Krupp, you know, OEM part. Yeah. And so now the prongs are different places. So now they have to problem solve on their own without the AR and like, 
I think that's where um, that'll be the, I'll be fascinated to see how they yeah. kind of like, how do you overcome that? Yeah, yeah. No, it'll be interesting. And to your point, uh, you know, construction companies or real estate companies not using the software. I joke all the time, like the majority of these prop tech businesses are being created by people that actually weren't in the industry before. They just like hear an idea like, oh, we need to fix construction management. Um, the, the issue with like real estate in general is it's market by market, jurisdiction by jurisdiction. Everybody has different codes, different things. So hard. Um, it's tough. Um, all right, man, this is, uh, this is fascinating. Like if you continue on with this business, I'd love to keep chatting. I think it's an amazing idea. Um, Thanks for sharing on WeWork and, and sure. what you're doing now. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Chris. How can uh, folks get in touch with you? I know you're on Twitter. If somebody's interested in what they heard today and want to reach out. Yeah, uh, Twitter. I'm trying to build my Twitter presence. Um, I was posting exclusively on LinkedIn and uh, and a couple of friends were like, hey, if you did this on SMB Twitter, you'd get so much more yeah. um, of, of a, like a relationship. And I've actually met, I think, more people on Twitter in the last 60 days than I have in doing LinkedIn for like the last four or five years. Yeah. So um, I've been blown away by that. So uh, at Nate Lenahan uh, on Twitter or uh, very active on LinkedIn as well. So I share on both platforms quite a bit and um, based out of Fort Worth right here with with our, our, our Chris. And uh, yeah, feel free to reach out. Cool, man. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks so much, Chris. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again. And I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.